Welcome to Fine Rambles, number 79. So today's kind of a tricky one, I think. I want to try to talk about a book that I highly recommend called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. And that's by Carol Tavris. And it's essentially an extended look at the commitment bias. And that's kind of the idea that, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. But there's more to it than that. It's not just escalation. It's worse. (laughs) It's a lot worse. Because when we start to act, or when we act, we start to believe whatever is necessary in order to justify our action. So, for example, we like to think that if we like someone, we help them. But the truth seems to be if we help someone, then we like them. And we like to think that if someone hurts us, that's because they hate us. But again, the truth appears to be that if you hurt someone, you will hate them. The Germans will never forgive the Jews for Auschwitz. The result of this is that our identities change to match our actions. But that's really dangerous because once our identity changes, it sets like concrete Even if there's overwhelming evidence, it's very hard for us to admit that we made a mistake. And for example, this is one reason the North Koreans made American prisoners of war write out false confessions and false loyalty statements. The communists didn't care that the Americans didn't believe what they were writing, because just writing the words made them believe. Just writing the words changed their thoughts. It's across the board, though. Every one of our actions brainwashes us to some extent. And the key here is to remember the correct order of operations. We act first and we think second. John Haidt talks about this in his books. Our brains are very slow compared to our muscles. And our muscles are very slow compared to our nervous system. So there's a stimulus in the environment. We act instinctively, and then our brain comes up with the reason why afterwards. And that means our brains are little more than public relation agents used to justify the actions we've already taken. (laughs) We really do believe our own bullshit. We really do believe what we tell people because we think, we think that our actions were driven by our thoughts, even though the opposite is the case. And, you know, this fooling ourselves is a blind spot. Just because you tell a driver that he has a blind spot, it doesn't make him suddenly able to see in that area. His, 
His optic nerve does not suddenly change location. Just being told about the dangers of the commitment bias doesn't solve the problem. And I can see this in my own head. Right now, I know that I'm enlightened. I know that I am able to avoid this problem. I know it, but I'm wrong. So that's the problem. And she then moves on in the book to discuss some real-life examples. And I want to touch on just two of them for right now. The first was that in the early 80s, America went through a full-blown moral panic. A a full-blown witch hunt. People thought daycares, like in the McMartin case, were sexually abusing children and performing just the most ghastly, over-the-top, satanic rites on these children. The fear of this spread across the country like wildfire. And the people who interviewed the children used anatomically exaggerated dolls, they asked leading questions, and they encouraged the children in the creation of these wild accusations. And the children were believed because, you know, they're children, they're truth-tellers, they're innocent. But that's wrong. The truth is that manipulating children into, quote, remembering absurd fantasies is extremely easy. And more generally, for all of us, our memories, our memories are completely unreliable. And again, that's a very counterintuitive thing to say, but it's the truth. Confidence in memories is misplaced. And the more vivid or traumatic a memory is, the more likely we are to believe it's real and the less likely it is to be real. And the reason for this is just fascinating. Every time we remember something, we rewrite the memory, and every rewrite gets corrupted by everything else that we are thinking about or experiencing in that moment. We don't remember what happened. We are remembering a corrupted copy of a corrupted copy, of a corrupted copy. And at the risk of touching a third rail, I believed that Christine Blasey Ford wasn't lying. But it's also why I didn't consider her memory of something that had happened 30, 40 years earlier to be sufficient evidence. Because... And again, this is strange to say, and it's hard to believe, but it's true. Eyewitness testimony is the least accurate evidence there is. It's the least accurate. And that is because we don't believe what we see. We see what we believe. We see what we expect to see. We see what we want to see. The second example she discusses that I want to talk about was Lauren Campbell. Now, Lauren Campbell was convicted of murder, and he confessed, 
and there was an eyewitness, and his prison bunkmate testified. And to me, that sounds like overwhelming evidence. Well, unfortunately, the bunkmate was a serial stooge. The eyewitness only identified Lauren Campbell after the police lied to him about Campbell failing a lie detector test, and Lauren Campbell later recanted his confession. Just as a side note, apparently 15 to 25% of the innocent confess. And so that is a non-trivial percentage. A confession is not very good evidence. But look at the other side. The prosecutors ignored four eyewitnesses who said the murderer looked nothing like Lauren Campbell. And the prosecutors also ignored the lack of any motive. Now, why did the prosecutors prosecute an innocent man for murder? You have to look at it from their point of view. The prosecutors knew, they knew he was guilty. They knew it. And the enormous effort of the prosecution committed them, irrevocably committed them. What was even worse was that by the time this truth started to come out, Lauren Campbell had already been in prison for years. So now you're the prosecutor. Someone comes to you and says, you prosecuted an innocent man and he's been in prison for years because of you. Well, you say to yourself, oh my God, only a bad person would imprison the innocent. And I know that I'm a good person. Therefore, he cannot be innocent. And this logic chain repeats itself all over the country all the time. Prosecutors are unable to acknowledge the truth of false prosecutions, despite overwhelming evidence. And examples she used include, you know, the DNA stuff we all know about, but examples of the murdered victim showing up in court. Even when the murder victim is walking around, they can't admit that they're falsely accusing a man of murder. The Innocence Project basically goes around exonerating the innocent using, I think, largely DNA evidence. In every single case where the Innocence Project has exonerated the innocent, in every single case, the police and prosecutors have closed the file. Not once have they tried to find the actual guilty party. Not one time. And the reason is this. They already know who's guilty. And it's that son of a bitch the Innocent Project fooled other people into letting go. And so they closed the case because they know they got their man. Now, Carol Travis, Tavris, sorry, has many other examples, but they all rhyme. The child therapists knew the children they were interviewing had been molested. Police and prosecutors 
cannot tell the innocent from the guilty because they know the person is guilty. Psychiatrists cannot tell the sane from the insane because they know the patient is insane. And she has just this damning line where she says, training and experience increase confidence, not accuracy. So the next time someone tells you to trust me because I'm an expert, be very, very skeptical. So that's the problem. That's the diagnosis. What the heck do we do about this? Part of me wants to give a pretty standard answer. And that standard answer would go something like this. We should try to destroy the ego because the ego clings to its belief. We should try to deliberately practice humility. We should try to avoid certainty. We should try to defer judgment. We need to try to admit mistakes right away, as soon as we can. We need to assume that we're wrong and then seek out disconfirming evidence. Think of something you strongly believe. Strongly. Now, ask yourself, what evidence would change your mind? And if you can't think of anything, that's a really bad sign. So that's the first answer I would give. And, you know, I like that answer. It sounds nice, but I'm not sure it actually works. Going back to this idea of a blind spot, I think we have to accept the biases. So Sam Harris was talking to Daniel Kahneman a while back. Daniel Kahneman is one of the grandfathers of behavioral economics and of the analysis of cognitive biases. And Sam asked him if he personally managed to avoid the very biases that he had often discovered or popularized. And Kahneman said, absolutely not. Just knowing we have these biases, like the commitment bias, isn't enough to get us to actually change our behavior. And so we have to anticipate our own irrationality. And the image that comes to my mind is of Ulysses. I think of Ulysses preparing to sail past the sirens. And so Ulysses had his men stuff wax into their ears so they couldn't hear the sirens as they rode past. They tied Ulysses to the mast so that he could hear their song but would be unable to act, unable to drown himself in an attempt to reach them. To me, this is the real lesson. It's when we are in our right minds, it's when we're still sane, that we must create the rules we will follow for when we are predictably going to be irrational and out of our minds. That means avoiding temptation. More, it means not putting myself into existential situations, what I think Nassim Taleb would call extremistan, where, you know, those black swans live. 
And at a larger level, I think it means reducing the concentration of power. Because power will be predictably abused by people who know they are right. Okay, that is all I've got. I'll catch you next week.